Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Simon Longstaff. I'm the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre and co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, and I'd like to welcome you all here this afternoon for what I think is going to be a very provocative session. Uh, before we proceed, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet and to pay my own respects to any people here and to their elders past and present. Uh, I could just ask you if you could to turn your mobile phones onto silent. If you're going to tweet, it's hash Fody, And there will be an opportunity both for questions for about 20 minutes, um, which are two points, just either side here, where you can come to the microphone and, and ask your questions of Helen Razor. And then after the session, she will be doing book signings out in the foyer if you'd like to get a copy of her best-selling book. Now, I should also say that in the first act of danger tonight, I should mention uh, today, Helen is legally blind and wearing five-inch heels. So <laughs> just getting up here from backstage in the Opera House is dangerous enough. But uh, for most of the 1990s, Helen Razor could be heard blabbing on ABC's youth network, Triple J. And while the national broadcaster still occasionally permits her to talk in exchange for money, she's now chiefly engaged in the work of writing on social and cultural matters. She works with Crikey, the Saturday paper, and a range of publications who permit her to say terrible things, which I think she's going to do today. Her fifth book, A Short History of Stupid, uh, remains a bestseller and was recently shortlisted for the New South Wales State Library's inaugural Russell Prize. We're living in pretty uh, touchy times at the moment, and particularly when you think just in the last week about the immense reaction to those terrible images that were published of that child lying dead on a beach in Turkey. The natural reaction, I think, is to respond with compassion. Uh, Helen's topic today is against compassion. Would you please welcome her to the stage? No bag? Uh, it's a potential work and uh, safety disaster. <clears throat> um, okay, I'm going to be tediously honest here and tell you that um, I'm a little bit nervous and not just because I forgot to pack my shapewear. Um, so there's no spandex between uh, you and, and the contours of my gut. Um, <laughs> A gut, by the way, uh, which is full of overpriced artisanal bread, um, which apparently is the only kind of bread you can buy in central Sydney. Um, and I'm also a bit nervous, not just because um, I feel that me being here in the, in the company of Dr Simon is some sort of clerical oversight and that Fody actually um, wanted to book an actual grown-up who was called something like Helga Raisin. Um, <laughs> But they emailed me by some sort of alphabetical accident and they were too polite because they are quite polite for dangerous people to correct their mistake when I said, oh, yes, yes, God, yes. Um, finally, I'm legitimised. Um, so I'm nervous about these things. and I do absolutely know that I'm an imposter here uh, and I absolutely wish that I'd remembered my spanks. But um, I'm also nervous because I know that to say, particularly this week, what I'm about to say, which is that some of your most passionate and, and, and noble and, and deep and completely legitimate feelings may not be very useful is a fairly unpopular position. Um, and if I become more unpopular as a result of saying this unpopular thing, then I'll never be able to afford uh, to replace my shapewear 
which, despite the claims made by its manufacturers, does need occasional replacement, particularly after sustained abuse of bread. Um, so if you don't enjoy this inquiry uh, and this injury to your feelings, please remember that the person that hurt you is called Helga Raisin. Um, <laughs> Helen Razor is actually a lovely, caring, compassionate lady who probably deserves a gift certificate for some high-end shapewear, particularly for when she's been eating too much bread. So, <clears throat> anyway, between mouthfuls of bread and nervousness, I was trying to think of a way to both trash your feelings and not actually hurt them at the same time, which is, of course, impossible. Um, so I thought what I'd do is, is settle instead in, in starting from a point on which we can probably agree, um, and this is all to delay sight of my big, ugly, fat point, which will be visible in a few moments from now. Um, so I'm looking, in other words, for a sort of an intellectual Spanx um, to wriggle out of, and I, I probably haven't found it, but here goes. Here's the Spanx. So we can probably all agree on this. You, you, you all know that this is an age where we give um, abnormally medical names and sometimes fairly extreme medical treatment to some fairly usual human problems. So um, this is not to dispute that some of these medical names um, are quite handy and might often quite point to something real, but it is to say that medical names for everyday things can uh, cause a bit of a muddle. Um, like, you know, when you say... Just, uh, people who are quite reasonably sad because a terrible thing happened to them become depressed or people who are bored because a really boring thing happened to them have ADHD or people who are full of bread because they crammed their own nervous fat faces with it all morning are gluten intolerant. <coughs> um, that's a thing. Um, are they gluten intolerant or they've got BED, binge eating disorder, which is a thing. Apparently, it's a real thing, BED, um, and it's in the new revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, so, and if you look it up, it's what happens if you eat past the point where you feel full once a week, once a week, you don't just have a pizza loyalty card, what you actually have is a disease. Um, so... This is what the system of what they call medicalisation brings, brings us. Uh, it takes quite understandable biological or, or psychological or social responses into an institutional understanding. Um, it, it, and this sort of stuff, you know, these big names for everyday things is not just applied by health professionals but by large numbers of us. Uh, we're not just full of bread but we're gluten intolerant. A child doesn't just have a perfectly reasonable revulsion for school, which is a horrible fucking place, um, but has sensory processing disorder. Um, which I'm sure it's a real thing if your child's got it. That was Helga Raisin saying that mean thing. Um, we, we don't just like to have sex with lots of different people, but we're love addicts. Um, so usual things that we could probably explain by recourse to basic biology or, or, or logic or our flaws or the flaws of the world, they acquire this medical dimension. And this can be quite funny when you hear a nice white middle-class persons, uh, uh, a group very well represented here, um, uh, <laughs> including my foul self. Um, so, you know, so I talk about um, that, you know, they have dissociative online shopping disorder or something like that. And that's quite funny, but it can also be quite serious and quite irritating when it, it gets to the point, as it often does, where we can look at a group of people whose problems are obviously social and say that they're medical. So 
For example, um, we say that Indigenous Australians are many, many times more likely to be afflicted with depression. And that might be true. But what this medical shapewear habit um, does is transform the, the truth at the, at the core of that proposition, which is that uh, Indigenous Australians are many, many times more likely than non-Indigenous Australians to be impoverished, incarcerated and subject to a range of institutional abuses. So even though you might make the connection or other people might make the connection between social poverty and what we call depressive disorder... Um, it is at both a practical and a policy level quite unhelpful to say that the problem with Indigenous Australians is that they're depressed, when the problem is clearly with a range of institutions, like who has the illness here? Um, so, so what we have um, in some of these medicalised cases is not just an aggrandisement of the trivial, like binge eating disorder, you know, I've got a pizza card, um, but a trivialisation of very grand and serious problems, like saying that an Indigenous Australian person is not actually just responding in a perfectly reasonable way to unreasonable conditions, but is sick. Um, the per you know, so we say this person has a disease um, and it's not a system of social organisation that is sick. Um, that's what the medical category of uh, depression in particular can do in this case. So we, we, we take a public or a social problem and we make it the property of a private individual. And it's this kind of powerful organisational thinking that allows us to come up with a phrase that you've probably already heard, which is compassion fatigue, considered by many people to be a legitimate illness. Um, it, it is, honestly. No, it is. Um, compassion fatigue is or has been at times considered a real thing. And like a lot of quasi-medical disorders, it probably has some usefulness as a category. Um, it was initially used to describe nurses, um, ER nurses, who were subject to trauma at an abnormally high rate and um, they were experiencing physical burnout and other kinds of emotional and, and psychological depletion. Um, so people who work uh, or live in intense environments like police officers or emergency workers or, or people who are carers, they, they find themselves dissociating and um, less than capable of experiencing everyday connection with, with people. Um, so it's probably a good thing to give this a name and recognise this problem, particularly in the context of, of labour, so you can work out ways to avoid its onset, perhaps. Um, just like it would be a good thing to avoid the onset of depression, um, where it more often occurs, which is in very particular social groups, um, who, in unsurprising news, as I just said, tend to really suffer inequality rather than they suffer depression. So these mass categories can be useful. I don't want to trash them completely in some uh, policy contexts, but they can tend to locate a particular problem within an individual. So what you risk here... Um, by using this uh, institutional language or saying, uh, is in saying this person has failed to be well, is that doesn't allow you to also say the situation pr that produced these symptoms is unwell. Um, and it makes a, 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 a public illness a, a, a private concern. Um, so I think this sort of stuff is part of a, you know, necessarily part of a problem with, with big institutions uh, and the policy surrounding them. Um, mass medical institutions aren't perfect and they, they can't ever be perfect. But 
a sure way to make them less than perfect or actually uh, dysfunctional is to uphold this idea that fixing the inevitable symptoms of a society with many problems is the responsibility of medical science. Um, it's like large numbers of people are force-fed poison and the solution is really to stop feeding them poison but to say that they have poison-imbibing disorder. Um, and while I said, uh, as I said, it can be useful uh, to describe a collection of symptoms in the terms of a disease, uh, you know, shorthand, uh, the problem of understanding things as private diseases or private responses is very widespread. We uh, have taken many, many cues from the medical establishment and, of course, we've started to enthusiastically adopt its language and the thinking of mass institutions. And often we find, to use institutional language, actually liberating. We, we often find it, you know, somebody says, oh, well, you, you have depression, and you think, oh, thank goodness, you know. Um, I mean, I, it's happened to me too. Oh, that's all right, I have, I have a disease. And we actually find it freeing sometimes to give ourselves a, a, a medical name. We feel it gives us power to have problems that feel that we're told are private but are actually very public in origin. Um, so it, depression is made private when in many cases, not all cases, but many cases, it's a public problem. Um, so I don't think that anything that I've said is, is terribly surprising and that was my intention. Um, I, we make jokes about this stuff all the time. We all find the idea of a society full of diseased people who find elaborate names for typical problems you know, actually quite funny, except when it's not funny and it's just desperately sad. Um, but I want you to sort of keep that idea of a person who has a publicly created problem, um, which is made private in mind when I begin to hurt your feelings. Um, and I also want you to keep in mind how many of us have heard the phrase compassion fatigue and perhaps even identified with it, perhaps even this week, um, just like we might have identified with the phrase depression. Um, so compassion fatigue, and it is considered by many practitioners a legitimate, a legitimate disease. It's one, one of those many diseases that come to us from a medical context and is adopted by popular discourse. And yes, it may describe a real set of symptoms. Um, I'm not saying that it's not useful, um, especially in a medical context. Um, and I'm not even saying that it's not useful in a, in a global communications context, which is where the idea really became popular, popularised because, you know, people really are genuinely traumatised by things that they see via media. Um, people are traumatised by the things that they see. And even if these are not directly seen and in an emergency room and we're exposed to them via television or, or the internet... Uh, the, the sense of desperation we feel which may be followed by an emotional shutdown is, is actually real. That's, that's real. Your feelings are real. They're stupid, but they're real. Um, so it's a thing that really, really happens. It happens to all of us, even happens to me, and I'm part Vulcan. Um, and what, what this might do in our own lives is make us less productive at work. Oh, God, no. Um, uh, but what... Uh, people will also say is that compassion fatigue will make us less productive as meaningful private citizens. Um, compassion fatigue is actually considered a real problem. Um, so whether you're talking about compassion fatigue, which is a flowery, diseaseified way that suggests that you did have compassion but it was taken from you, or what some writers are now calling narcissism, which means that you might never have had compassion in the first place, um, 
the absence of compassion in the individual is seen as a real problem. And there are some thinkers um, like Anne, Anne Mann, whose book The, the Life of I is, 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 is good, even though you know, there's a few problems I have with, but I'm in the business of finding problems. Um, and she was advancing a more complex view and saying that compassion was actually taken from us by contemporary life. So even though people like the very scholarly, very, very bright man are still diagnosing a disease, narcissism, not compassion fatigue, basically the same thing, um, she was at least saying that the, the disease has social origins. Um, and we've all heard this sort of thing or maybe even thought or, or, or spoken this sort of thing, like contemporary life makes us very selfish, you know. So um, I think there is obviously a good argument to make that contemporary life does make us selfish. Um, and I agree with man's idea that narcissism is a necessary byproduct of, of growth capitalism. And that to believe that you are special and the master of your own destiny and that anyone who has less than you is undeserving is what is going to happen when we participate in the terms of this economic base. Um, this is all, you know, pretty unchallenging stuff for your average socialist. I hope there's some of us here this afternoon um, or even you wussy progressive liberals. Um, <laughs> we could probably all agree... Um, that the conditions of um, production make us into particular kinds of people. The nature of exchange determines our character. The character of the market becomes our character. It has to be to allow the market to survive. Um, so I believe that we do, and it, you know, a Marxist would probably believe that we do too, um, have compassion fatigue or, or narcissism or whatever you want to call this individually focused thing that we have. Um, but what I don't believe is that the restoration of that compassion, like we ever had any, is the answer. Because if what we call a lack of compassion is the result of the relations produced by the economic base, then we don't fix anything until we fix the base. It's like saying that we have poison imbibing disorder and letting us drink the poison over and over again. It's demanding that we change our symptoms, our lack of compassion, and hoping quite illogically that the absence of symptoms will also cure the disease. So I'm getting closer to the part where I'm gonna hurt your feelings. I'm taking off the specs. Um, it is very, very, very usual for people to say that the biggest problem in the world is that people just don't care. Um, I, I see calls for compassion all the time on my Facebook feed. I see newspaper articles chiding government agencies for their lack of compassion, as though government agencies ever had a face or a character. Um, I see President Obama twice already um, this year at the UN had a little break on dropping drones on kitties in the Yemen and said that compassion was needed. Um, and why have you end then if all you need is compassion? Um, so it's, it's easy to think that compassion is what is needed and it's very easy um, to call some spankless, bread-filled woman who says that it is not the main thing that is needed, um, a cruel neocon sourdough scoffing daughter of Ayn Rand. You can probably do that. You might be doing that on Twitter right now. Um, it's very, very tempting for all of us to think that if only we cared more... <coughs> that the world would be transformed. It's 
also very easy in a private emotional context to do it. And I know in private or semi-private context, we've all suffered or, or witnessed a lack of compassion and be hurt. And that, that'll, that'll never change. And that's usual, nothing wrong with that. And then we sort of extrude that private experience and make it, we transpose it on public, uh, the public realm. And we think, if only there was more compassion, then that terrible thing over there, over the other side of the world that I, I saw on the Guardian website would, would, would not happen if only we had more compassion. A really clear example here of how people believe that is um, on discussion um, on the policy surrounding asylum seekers. Um, now, just, just to be very clear, this policy is something I consider to be abhorrent, insane, expensive, improper and actually completely unnecessary. Um, but what I don't think is that compassion is going to provide a solution to it because um, there's actually no shortage of compassion um, surrounding this conversation at all. There's no shortage of compassion surrounding the, the conditions that produce the policy. And when Tony Abbott uh, a man who is very much ruled in policy by his deep emotions, um, he is. He says that the most compassionate thing we can do is stop the boats. And I think we have to allow that he actually really means that. I, I do. I have a lot of unflattering things to say about the policies of, 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 of Tony Abbott. Um, but I, I, I think as a policymaker, he's awful. But as a compassionate person, he actually scores pretty well. Um, he lacks a lot, including a healthy economy. Um, <laughs> but what he doesn't want for is compassion. Now, there's not much uh, that's surprising about your first visit to the, the press gallery at Parliament House. Um, you see Laurie and you see Michelle and then you see all these babies who are going to be Laurie and Michelle one day. And, um, it, and all of these people in the gallery, they're, they're journalists, so they're cynical by default. Um, but where you get the surprise is when you actually start meeting politicians. And the surprise is their absence of cynicism. The big surprise in Canberra is that it is populated by powerful people who care. Um, I don't mean to suggest that politicians are incorruptible or that they're not driven by ambition or capital or bad ideas or terrible staff or external interests, or that they are delightful Pollyannas to whom the, the very thought of, say, taking a helicopter to a golf club or a credit card to a lap dance establishment would never occur. Um, of course, they are often bad people because they are people, but they are actually genuinely very full of compassion. Um, I'm not asking you to admire them because I'm actually not asking you to admire compassion not asking you to admire it in yourself or, or, or anybody else. But I do want you to entertain the possibility that people in positions of great power often care a lot, and particularly in the field of politics. You simply can't continue to go to work every day if you don't believe that what you're doing is the right and the proper and the civic-minded and the compassionate thing. So on the matter of asylum, I've seen several politicians... Um, actually and possibly legitimately shed tears. Um, I saw Tony Burke in late July weep at the ALP National Conference's uh, Chapter 9 amendments when he said that what he needed to recommend was that um, the, the, the ALP, ALP uphold a turnback policy. He cried. I think, it was I think they were real tears. Like the leader of the opposition and the leader of the government, he believes that the most compassionate act is to stop deaths at sea. 
you, you actually can't question this compassion. You, you, can't, you can go on believing if it's fake if you want, although I don't happen to think that it is. Uh, I don't think it's um, counterfeit and I continue to believe that, that politicians care. Um, even and often quite especially the ones with whom I happen to vehemently disagree. And even though you can choose to believe that, that Tony Burke was bunging it on, and certainly a lot of people there did, um, and that true compassion would lead him to a better solution, I want you to consider the words of the backbencher that day, Andrew Giles, who spoke against the turnback policy, and he said, none of us has a monopoly on compassion. So, you know, in other words, he's saying, like, compassion is not a, a question, you know, don't ask that question. It's no more than a question that it is an answer. But what it has become, particularly in the case of asylum seeker policy, um, is, uh, for me anyway, a, a real embarrassment. We have one group of people saying stop the boats and another saying let them all come. And I would argue that both these slogans point to impossible and unethical solutions. And we have a country of commentators who are all invested chiefly in the fact of their own compassion. You, you, you simply can't keep charging the side on which you are not with a lack of compassion, as though compassion were the only question, the only answer and the actual prize. I've heard the word compassion used so often in this debate, I wonder if it's not actually a kind of mission creep. The issue of compassion has become central here, more important than visas. Who has it and who doesn't have it seems to be what it's all about. Um, it's, it, compassion is nothing like a visa. It's no guarantee of anything. It's not a guarantee of good policy. They have compassion. What they don't have is policy. It's a, guaranteed, it's a guarantee only in public life of a prolonged, if unintentional, display only of itself. And I would say that even if it doesn't become depleted, which is what our friends in the medical science would say it ha happens when you get compassion fatigue, it can actually tend to immobilise those who have it. On a personal level, just with, you know, the real-life inevitable compassion that, that you're going to feel, it can be paralysing because, you know, a, a stream of emotional stimulus um, makes us consistently emotional. Um, and... In the case of asylum seekers, it makes us not in top form to advocate for whatever side we choose. On a public level, it becomes an exercise in just exponential display of itself. Either way, we become paralysed in not just the emotion itself, but the requirement to actually show it. Um, I just, I, I, I want to remind you that I, I, I believe that your compassion is real. I believe any tears that you shed this week were, were absolutely real. I, I don't doubt your comp compassion. The only thing that I doubt is its effectiveness. Um, having, having said this, there was a really good example uh, just last week of what we could call uh, fake or conspicuous compassion. Um, the Saturday before this one, you all know Daffodil Day, right? The annual Daffodil Day, you know this? Um, so it's the, the Cancer Council's major annual public fundraiser and you buy a flower or you buy, buy a plastic replica of a flower from a representative and this money goes to what we must presume to be a worthy cause. I know lots of people have very credible problems with different kinds of uh, cancer fundraising, but for the sake of argument, let's just say that this is a good cause and that giving money to the Cancer Council is a good thing to do. All questions about that organisation or the nature of charity itself aside. So... 
Usually the, the Cancer Council has gone with a fairly flowery approach in its uh, promotions and this to date has worked quite well for them. They play some music by Coldplay or something equally menstrual and <laughs> we all feel a jolt of compassion and we open our wallets. It's just the Cancer Council has previously just asked, asked us to care and to show compassion. Um, this year, though, the promotion was different and quite aggressive and actually more of um, an echo of what we might expect at the hands of the people we now call charity muggers. You know, there's people at the train station um, who ask you for money and when you say, oh, no, sorry, I haven't got any, they say, are you even human? OMFG. Um, <laughs> and and they, they sort of bully you into that. Um, so the promotion this year was quite different for the Cancer Council. It was show you care about beating cancer. It didn't say care about beating cancer. It didn't even say beat cancer. It was, it wasn't, it was just show you care about beating ca cancer. It wasn't about acting from goodwill, which would be, for you philosophy nerds, what Immanuel Kant would want. And it wouldn't be about acting uh, toward good consequences, which for you other half of philosophy nerds is what Peter Singer would want. <laughs> no no recognisable ethics here. It just said, show you care about beating cancer, um, which is interesting because it out and out says, appear compassionate. Now, I don't think there's anything actually particularly wrong with the Cancer Council doing this because it's only the job of the Cancer Council to, to get money That's the, with this promotion. That's their only job. It's not their job to be ethical outside their own remit. And if their advertising advisor says that this works, then that's okay. It's only their job to get my money. It's not their job to babysit my ethics. That's the job for, for Peter and Emmanuel. Um, what's interesting here is that it indicates that compassion is now something that we know we need to display. It is something that actually has a value. So to get back to the earlier rambling when I still had my theoretical spanks on, um, let me remind you about how better thinkers on narcissism, which is the absence of compassion, say that society turns us into hard people and we must resist this toughness if we ever want things to improve. Now, I also want you to think about what I was saying before about how fixing this system, this lack of compassion, is not going to change the base, not going to change the, 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 the cause, um, which is to say we live in an era, again, where the economic base, which places us in a competitive environment, produces this non-compassionate outcome. So to be very clear about it, fixing the, symp the symptom is not going to fix the origin of the problem. Um, I also want you to think about how compassion has been seen in the Cancer Council ad as something that actually has a visible economic value. Compassion itself has become an item, a commodity, whose possession marks us as a better person, better than other people, presumably. So if compassion is seen as not only something that can be exchanged for money, that has a monetary value, um, but it's something that places us in competition with people who don't have it, um, so, you know, it has a fetish value as well, then maybe compassion could be said to be part of um, the, 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 the problem. Um, the, the economic competitive problem, it echoes that. It's not the solution. Um, I'm not by any means recommending that you divest yourself of compassion for revolutionary purposes. Um, 
I, I don't think you could avoid, uh, avoid it anyway. Caring for others is an unsolvable problem. And <laughs> if there's anything we can say about being human, it's that we tend to this tiresome work, um, if not otherwise raised in the forest by wolves or charity muggers. Um, you're going to feel compassion whenever it's ineluctable for you, um, even as it is for a neoconservative politician. And it is politically useless and paralysing to you, even as it is for a neoconservative politician. Doesn't mean you shouldn't feel it. Pointless injunction, you're going to feel it anyway, damn it. But it does mean that just because it feels powerful, it's not necessarily powerful. And just because it feels selfless and transporting, and it really does, and who amongst us can genuinely say that we've not been personally moved by just how much we've been personally moved? <laughs> it's just fucking useless. It's, it's inevitable and it's intoxicating, but this doesn't mean that it'll lead you or anyone else anywhere of any value. One of my least favourite monsters of history is uh, Mother Teresa. <laughs> Total compassionate bitch. <laughs> Let's set aside that she had some very weird interpretations of Christian love and a spiritual fondness for suffering that saw many of the people seeking care at her ministry get nothing but applause for sharing the passion of the Christ. Yeah, that'll fix your leprosy, won't it? Um, Let's even overlook the fact that she was a batty theocrat that led her, sub, led her, uh, her patients endure pain when she, in receipt of many funds, could have easily given them medical care. Let's just pretend that she was the marvellous person that even many secular people presume her to be and look at one of her most famous statements, which is, never worry about numbers, help one person at a time and always start with the person nearest you, which would be you, Simon. Um, now, I imagine what Simon needs right now is probably a good, strong coffee to help him endure the end of my talk. Um, but if I, I would worry less about the numbers um, than the one person nearest me, a, a larger number of you than was already predicted would be asking for your money back because you'd be here with nothing to do for 15 minutes as I popped off to get Simon a macchiato, is it? Um, you look, yeah, I think you're a macchiato man. Um, and I'd never get to finish this marvellous chat that, um, and you'd probably all go home cross saying, that Helga Raisin really needs to lay off the bread and get herself some shapewear. Um, so anyway, Mother Teresa, uh, monstrous Teresa, um, already been reviled, reviled by many act activist atheists. Oh God, those people. But um, anyway... It might seem extreme to use her as an example of what we think about compassion and it could seem to you that using this compassion, um, this compassionate example of monstrous Teresa um, is a category error. I, I actually don't think so because I think this don't look at the numbers stuff is absolutely key to compassion. Um, I think compassion, inevitable as it is on, uh, on all scales, has been so overvalued, you know, remember you can buy it and you need to have it to look better than other people. Um, it's, it's been so overvalued, even by the very economy that some people say robs us of it, that we've begun to think of it as, as the basis for meaningful social change. 
Um, the terrible thing about wonderful compassion is that it demands an object. It demands a photograph of a drowning child or the sight of a suffering person or the thought of death endured by cancer or by negligent nuns. Um, compassion has an appetite and lo like anything that needs feeding, in in including myself, it can't always be trusted to the lead. What if compassion takes you to a, a trough full of visible suffering, you know, the people nearest you? What are you missing along the way? Uh, it's an act, I believe, of, of belligerent and selfish faith for me to trust my compassion. I'm not control of the things that incited in me. And what do I miss when I'm led by my snout to the juiciest morsel of sadness? Uh, do I miss the fact that the clothes on my back were made by Bangladeshi textile workers and wrapped by UK packers um, from materials exchanged for petrodollars that reassert the power of the US hegemon that prompts death and confusion in Syria and ends up drowning small children? Do I remember that my smartphone, whose map function is leading to me to what I'm sure is the true source of compassion, was made in a Chinese labour camp by people who haven't seen their family in months or slept in days but are doing a lot better than the people in Central Africa or Indonesia who mind the elements in my phone that get me to my compassionate date on time? And if I stop to bear all of this compassionate weight and manage not to become an object for somebody else's because by now I'm on a fucking Zoloft drip feed, <laughs> um, could I possibly make myself feel better by knowing that the company that made this phone, which, let's, let's be honest, is full of about 17 other people's blood, has a human rights division? Oh, they do. It's currently promoting same-sex marriage rights. <laughs> Should I feel compassion for those people who are currently unable to convince the state to give them a certificate and legitimacy? And if I do, am I forgetting the real victims of homophobia here? You know, the ones who are never going to get to be the CEO of Apple or even care about getting married because their life is not fucking suitable for a moving YouTube video about love, love, love. What about the rent boys? What about the people for whom things can't get better? What about all the places in the world where hope is a long, long way from ever being restored? Do I just count on my compassion to lead me there? And the idea that if I'm nice and caring to certain people, particularly Tim Cook, oh, he seems nice, then this love will trickle down and help everybody. Well, you know, wealth doesn't trickle down. I think, you know, Tari Gali and other people, Naomi Klein are doing a good job of convincing us of that. Wealth doesn't trickle down and neither do the good vibes of compassion. If you believe that your love is powerful enough to change the world, you're just as deluded as monstrous Teresa. If you believe that it is possible for you to become aware of every being in every situation who is worthy of your compassion, you're as deluded about the scope of your intelligence as Tony Abbott. If you believe that Apple makes up for its labour practice with a few kind words about monogamous, successful gay people, you are as rich in naivety as Tim Cook is in stock options. You cannot know if your compassion is earned. You cannot know if your compassion is ethical. But you can know this. It paralyses you in a system that doesn't produce inequality because of a lack of compassion. In fact... Compassion is one of the ways in which we conceal the system itself. You must begin to see that you cannot ever begin to see even a fraction of the pain in the world. Violence may not be happening to the person nearest you 
And even if it is, you may not be able to see it. How can you see the slow, boring violence that robs some workers of their bodies over years? How can you trace the fast, unimaginable violence that robs some people of their lives and their breath across the other side of the world? How can I get a Simon a coffee when I'm on some purple revolutionary tear? You, you have to look at the numbers, despite what monstrous Teresa said, and not just the person nearest you or to the picture of their drowning or the movie of their life. And actually, you don't even have to look at the numbers. You just need to look at the formula that contains them, that sees these same numbers, these same, these same people, these same individuals land in the same terrible place over and over again. Compassion is asking for the impossible. It asks us for capitalism with a human face. We can keep demanding this false and moral appearance from a bunch of numbers. That's all capitalism is. We can ask capital to civilise itself and put itself into some lovely spanks. But capitalism is not listening because it can't hear you. You can't implore a formula to do something and you can't expect compassion to be half as good at transformation as a new set of equations. Brothers and sisters, thank you very much. Okay, uh, Helen promised she was going to upset some of you. I heard a few intakes of breath along the way, so I think she probably succeeded in that. That was Helga. Oh, sorry, Helga. Uh, there's an opportunity to come down to the microphones here and there if you want to ask a question of Helga. Um, but I'm going to start off um, while people gather their thoughts. So it's a nerdy philosophical thing, okay? Oh, you love that. Yeah, can't help it. Uh, you mentioned Immanuel Kant, you mentioned uh, Peter Singer, but you've also left out somebody who might have been mentioned, which is uh, Adam Smith. Oh, God. No, before... Oh, no. Yes, oh, yes. That book on morals he wrote? Yes, The Theory of Moral Sentiment. Oh, it's awful. Right. Well, it's, the... That's, the, that's why we're in this shit we're in. Okay. So Dave, he and David Hume both believed that the spring to doing anything is not reason, but it starts with emotion or sentiment. In the case of Smith, it was sympathy and reciprocity. In Hume, he has the general notion of sentiment. So just at a philosophical level at the start, let's accept all of the arguments yeah. that you make that there's a, a system out there, that it, that it distracts us from seeing the way it operates and its effects upon us. But wouldn't you... Well, what would you think about the argument that they would make that if we're going to do anything about it, be driven to any kind of action will have to be because we feel something. No, first. sure. I mean, I understand that. I mean, we, we should say that uh, Emmanuel Kant, who is, you know, probably more widely adored and more influential. I mean, not that I agree with 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 his um, you know, bourgeois liberal philosophy my, myself. But you know, Emmanuel Kant actually says that, that it, it it doesn't it, it it doesn't matter if you're compassionate. Like he actually says that. Yeah, um, but, he, but then people don't all agree with Kant. Like, but anyway. No, no. But um, so I'm just saying. Well, there's there's other major thinkers um, who who debunk this idea, and there's a lot of thinkers who say compassion is really important. I think um, you know Rousseau said it, and what have you. But um, okay, so you've asked me a nerdy philosophical question. These chaps are writing in what Adam Smith's 18th century, right? Yeah. So it's really just boils down. Um, do you think we're going to change anything if we don't feel? Okay, but look, if we don't feel something to drive us to do it. But I, 
No, I mean, no. I think, I, I mean, I just, and the reason for that is the one that I sort of tried to explain in that. So, you know, um, Adam, Adam Smith and, and other people writing about morals, and I mean, if you didn't know, Adam Smith didn't just write about the dismal science. Um, he, he also wrote about um, morality. Um, these people are writing in the 18th century, and these people are writing long before the time of mass culture. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can talk about pure reason then, and you can talk about compassionate actions, because, you know, I mean, somebody sort of breaks wind at 10 o'clock in London and you, you hear about it in Brighton, you know, the, ne the next hour. You're living in a very small community of, of people and it's, it's not a mass culture. And quite often what we do now, particularly with um, the, uh, the images of that the, the little, little chap, Eileen Curdies, people are sort of transposing this small intimate event and making it very big in a world of, 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 of seven, seven billion people and a world of problems now full of unimaginable complexity. It was not unimaginable com complexity then, and, and it was a world that produced people like Adam Smith, who could be a philosopher, who could be a con an economist, who could be a scientist, and know everything and have read everything at that point. Uh, an easy way of saying it was, those were much simpler times. But in answer to your ethical question, uh, I think I agree with Nisha on this. Um, oh, if I had a dollar for every time I said that. <laughs> Which is that compassion is very immobilizing. Um, okay. the, the, the whole question, if you just want to talk purely about ethics, like... Um, so feeling in general might motivate us, but there's something about compassion in particular that's immobilizing, is that...? Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's get a few people on the floor if there's any, and well, if not, well, we can come back to our thinking. conversation. Compassion is We'll come back to that. Okay, yep, over here, your name, please. Uh, hi, my name is James. Um, Helen, I agree with your thoughts that the ruthlessness of capitalism is creating this demand for compassion, but I'm just wondering if you think that it's perhaps possible that maybe the rise in compassion could compel us and the world to change or replace capitalism in the future? I... no. I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's not... I mean, it's... I, 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 I guess a, a Marxian would say that that's sort of a fairly bourgeois way to look at it because, um, you know... It, I'm sorry, that was a mean thing to say. Um, what, what, I, what I mean is that, I don't know, you, you, you seize power from, from, from people. You're not seizing it on their behalf. Like... I, I actually can't think that people who care are going to become a revolutionary class. You can't have revolution without revolution. Um, you... But, that, but that's actually... I mean, the history of revolutions has been a middle class animated by some kind of concern, mobilising people then, usually in a proletariat, to act. That's... You see, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, it, it is something that drives people to act. Or do you think that's just a myth that's been created... I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, there's people who have um, different ideas about how about whether whether or not the Russian Revolution was a was, was a bourgeois revolution or or not. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, the, and certainly the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution didn't really turn out as planned, did they? No. Well, as Deng um, Xiaoping said, it's too soon to know, tell. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. 
Let's go to Michael. But that, I mean, I like, I, you know, as the, the problems of China aside, I actually like that view. You know, mm. I mean, it is. It's it's far too soon to tell, and um, you know, who knows? Maybe they're sort of just building up capitalism so they can return to full red glory. Who can oh. say? Yeah. Um, hello, Helga. Thank you. Um, uh, you actually started to answer the question I was going to ask, um, talking back to simpler times. Uh, this this need these days to sort of look back and look at how beautiful things were and how we're losing, well, so many things, including compassion. In fact, yeah. the history, it was never compassionate. We're more compassionate now. We're buried in compassion yes. now than we ever... Than ever at any time throughout the, the history of human beings. Yeah. Um, but somehow or other, it, there is so much compassion and so much need to put, make sure that nobody gets hurt, that nothing happens. Yeah, I, I can but concur. <laughs> so I absolutely do, and I mean, I like what you said about you know this idea that we have of of, of progress that um, you know, and 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 this is where a lot of people start thinking that Marx was a bit wrong. Um, oh, I, I do anyway. I mean, history is not it's, it's sort of linear and mechanical, and progress does doesn't always happen. Things aren't always be, you know better now or even different now to markedly to. What, what they were, and um, you know, it's 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 funny how nostalgia keeps replicating its, itself. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's examples of, of 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 people in the in the 18th century saying exactly the same things. Oh, things aren't what they used to be. I read this great thing the other day, um, where uh, by um, there were you know how people sort of talk about how Facebook's ruining the world. There was a whole, all of these um, op-eds in the, in the New York Times in the beginning of the 20th century about how postcards were destroying the world, you know, <laughs> which, is, which is so cute. Um, but the, the chap who asked me be, be, before about, you know, do you, do you not think that people will be, uh, you know, moved? I, 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 just, I just don't know. And I, I just don't think that compassion is ever really what, what motivates people. It's not to say that it's not one of several possible motivations. I, I guess I was just arguing in a provocative way, uh, way against its centrality. So, so is your argument uh, that, that against compassion itself or against too much compassion? I mean, church choirs or uh, chocolate or anything, there's lots of things which are innocuous or good, but you wouldn't want to have a choir in every corner, gum up the city. There is such yeah. a thing, I'm told, as too much chocolate, although I've not discovered that personally. Uh, <laughs> Um, but is that the problem? Is it is it compassion as a thing in itself which you object to as creating this problem, or just it being, is our, it's or our, too it, much of it? It's our faith in compassion, right. uh, and it's something that I've I've noticed. I just noticed um, the word creeping into popular discourse, um, particularly in the last decade, along with another really uh, uh, regular phrase that I see people say on social media or in news headlines and what have you. It's like such and such, and why it matters, you know, mm. like everything matters. Um, you know, people um, have become quite foundational in their thinking and, it, and this thing matters and, and that's why it does. And, and, and quite often to the thing that matters, compassion is posited um, as a solution. And I'm, you know, I'm not just saying, I'm not saying that it's not real and I'm not necessarily even saying that it, it, it's an indulgence. I mean, it's something that we, we all, all, all feel. And I mean, the, the, the pictures of that little boy this week, I mean, you just... You know, you can't look, but you can't look away. And 
I, I, you know, and you know, I read in the, the the Guardian today. It just said this one boy. I can't remember the, the headline verbatim, but it was just like this one boy shows us everything that's wrong with the refugee crisis. Now, you know, you know, if you wanted to try to explain Syria to me, if you're a foreign policy analyst, I have a spare five days. If you could talk constantly to me for five days, then maybe you can explain to me that, that multilateral conflict because I'm not quite on top of it. I don't think many people are. And as sad as what happened to that poor little chap is, I mean, it's devastating, you know? But... It doesn't explain everything about the refugee crisis. And this is supposed to be the fucking Guardian, you know? <laughs> it's supposed to be a... It's, it's supposed to be a storied newspaper of level-headed record and it's fucking BuzzFeed. Okay. And, you know, hashtag brave and hashtag so brave and I care, no, I care more than you. No, you don't really care. You know, and we say that the problem is that we live in a competitive capitalist environment, but we're still sort of showing our, our, our fetish item of compassion. Mine's bigger than yours. I mean, come on. There's something very broken. So, no, I don't think that there's anything... <laughs> um, wrong my... with compassion in itself. It's just the way that it's, it's too used. Right, yeah. <laughs> microphone too. <laughs> yeah, look, um, you're not from The Guardian, eh? No, no right. Good. <laughs> They've already sacked me. I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. care. <laughs> I go along with much of what you say, just a bit wary about uh, the dispassion of uh, some of the people like Mao and Lenin, etc. but, you know, too early to say. But I was wondering if you would distinguish between empathy and no, compassion. No, not, not, not really, sort of same, 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 same basket. You think so? I would have thought, let me just suggest that empathy is something that one can have with everyone whereas compassion is much more focused on a particular site. So, for example, Lenin could have had empathy for the Tsar and for the other people, as could Stalin, perhaps, but compassion he could not. And so if he would have had empathy, we might have been able to have a revolution without all the... Garbage I just tend to think that blood. if Lenin had read all of the volumes of Capital, then we could have had a better revolution. Oh, I disagree, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, depends which... Anyway, but... um, no, I understand the, the, there are uh, gradations between empathy and compassion. Um, um, if it makes you feel more comfortable, if you want to just sort of substitute um, the word... I, I, I selected compassion because it is the one that is um, most, most, most often used. It's a word that turns up very often in, in discussion uh, in the UN. It's a very, very important um, part of, of discourse now. So just if you just wanted to replace it all for feelings... Um, <laughs> No, but then you're losing... Your feelings are cool. Then you're you're sort of just buggerising the language then. No, I'm not. No, there's a difference. No, no, sir, I'm I'm just saying that uh, that feelings are uh, not not something that are to be as venerated as they currently are. Just, just, Just feelings in general. The way I feel and how I'm moved... I'm just saying that in a world that is as, as, as complex and as run on formulae as it is, the demand, it's essentially a critique of humanism. That's what I'm yeah. offering. We're take, okay, we're going to take one last question. Um, we'll have time for it, I think. Uh, my name is Chuck. 
you just touched now on the question I was going to ask. Brilliant. It's my, it's my thinking that compassion, the emotion, displaces thought. <laughs> it's a lot easier to show anguish and feeling, fellow feeling, than it is to tackle a problem. Yes. And, uh, and I think the liberal, or certainly parts of the liberal establishment, have got stuck with compassion. There's, there's no way out. How do we change this world? There's no thought that's you, been applied. Entrepreneur, no one else is listening, I think we're fucked. <laughs> um, I think it's just like... I, no, not a big fan of McLuhan, but what did he say? That great thing about fish and, and, and water. Um, you know, I, I don't know who discovered water, but I can tell you it wasn't a fish. Um, we inhabit the, the climate of liberalism so utterly um, that we're unable to see beyond it. We are absolutely sure of our own humanism. Um, th this idea of human rights, of, 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 of rights of our own humanity, um, we naturalise, as I'm sure you know, we naturalise these ideas. We don't realise that these ideas come to us purely from Western history um, and these ideas arose in, in concert with the very systems that produce the drowned boy. Um, they didn't happen as an accidental byproduct. They didn't happen despite it. They happened along with it. And um, I think, you know, you and I are just probably basically going to agree. I don't see how we see out of liberalism. I don't see how we see beyond the, you know, the Oprahification um, of, of, of politics, which is, you know, I mean, how, how much do you care? I don't like him. He doesn't care. He's not fit to govern because he doesn't care. If only he cared more, there would have been a better revolution. You know, all, all of this stuff. I mean, you're talking... It's, 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 it's just the disease of liberalism and I don't know how one thinks beyond it. And I don't know how one... Uh, because, you know, I'm sure that there are people right now seething, um, probably just hearing because a lot of these words are so triggering to people, you know, com com <laughs> compassion and caring and, oh, my God, you know, she said this terrible thing. And they're probably now mistaking me from an ultra for an ultra-conservative, you know, like objectivist and, and not the raging pinko that I actually am. <laughs> Because politics doesn't matter. I mean, people go on and on and on about, oh, there's no difference between left and right anymore. Uh, yeah, because you stop fucking realising what it was, you stupid, tedious, cultural leftists. OK, we're going to have to take... Who just want to talk... Um, not, not that point, but if you can ask really quick questions each, not big comments, or see if we can get a last comment. Uh, and yeah, I'll really answer quick. with my usual brevity. One, yeah, absolutely. One. What happened to I'm the counting. ladies' answer? Well, OK. There's no, no, there. that wasn't a feminist thing. Yeah, I just okay, like just, talking to ladies. There's one waiting, so we'll right. get to it. My name's David. I'm no one of consequence. You, you listed a diseases that, like, uh, poison intolerance disorder. Um, I made that one up. As an, as an yeah. example, um, cholera was something that once we realised what it did, what it was caused by, we immediately said, yes, OK, it's a disease, and yes, it's the job of the government to do public health to stop us being exposed to sewage. Mm. But you're saying poison intolerance disorder doesn't cause us the reverse. Is that because times have changed, or is it because cholera is somehow different to, po to po okay. poison intolerance disorder? She only made up poison intolerance thing. I know. Yeah, but, but the but general as an thing. Example okay, of but her class don't answer. Um, yeah. Okay, but good question. Yeah. Okay. He's my and, boss. And I'm sorry. Yeah, He's right. cross because he hasn't had a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't be a macchiato. Yes. Uh, 
Hi. Yes, uh, my name's Nina. Um, it follows on from the point that you made, which I thought was really interesting, that compassion, um, there's a problem with compassion because it only targets the symptoms, not what brings it about. That's how I understood it. My question yes. to you is, um, if compassion doesn't motivate people, what does? Is it anger? Is it morality? What is there anything that can drive people to bring about social change? One of your legendary brief answers, please, Helen. Oh, um, well, you, you know, it, I mean, it's usually times of economic instability that motivates people to to be to be frank. And looks like we're headed there. So, viva revolution! <laughs> Look, I might, now, Helen, Helen's going to be doing. A book signing out there, so if you didn't get an answer to your question, maybe tackle her out there. As usual, I'm going to finish off because I think it's always good to appeal to Plato at the end of these things. You are such an old-fashioned yeah, guy. I, can't help I, I know, I know. Um, two horses both need to be running, the will and the emotion, but with reason in the chariot seat. And I don't think that you can have any kind of change if any of those things are missing. You need all three. You've got to have emotion, some of which will be compassion perhaps, will to actually do something and reason. And I think the insights that were generated there still hold true. But that's my little soapbox rant. On that note, would you please join with me in thanking Helen Razor. Thanks, Helen. Thank you so much, Dave.